Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. All right, welcome back to the Revolution and Military Affairs podcast. Uh, today, we have somebody that really, I think, fits the bill for what this podcast is about, um, both in name, but also in, in spirit. Uh, so today we have Antoine Bousquet from uh, the university, or I'm sorry, the Swedish Defense University, where he's an associate professor within the Department of Politics. And he's written a couple, he's actually written a lot of stuff, but a couple of things that I want to talk about today. So the first is the scientific way of war, order and chaos on the battlefields of modernity. And this book originally came out uh, quite a while ago, but it, it's been uh, reissued a couple of times through uh, a couple of uh, new editions. And if you read it today, you wouldn't think it was written more than 15 years ago. You'd think it's written today about the future of conflict. So a very forward-looking book that was published uh, a while ago. There's also a, a, an article uh, that he wrote uh, that Antoine wrote that I find fascinating called The Battlefield is Dead. So we're going to talk about those two things and just ideas in general about war and warfare. So with that long introduction, Antoine, thank you for taking the time to meet with us today. Thank you. Thank you for the generous introduction and for inviting me on the podcast. Absolutely. I guess the first thing, the idea that permeates throughout the book is uh, systems theory and systems thinking. And that's something that I think is underrepresented in a lot of modern military thinking. We don't view things through this interconnectedness of how uh, things operate both internally and with the external environment. So what place do you feel that that, uh, that idea, those two ideas, systems theory and system thinking, have within the study of armed conflict? Mm -hmm. Well, system theories is a very broad category and encapsulates a lot of ideas. And we can retrace the origins, I think, all the way back to the 1930s and 40s, when there emerged a series of concurrent developments in a variety of fields. So you find this happening in biology, in engineering, in psychology and sociology. It's an array of thinkers and kind of problem solvers who grapple with uh, this 
idea of uh, the system. And initially, we see that associated with the fields of cybernetics and general systems theory, yeah. today more commonly with what we think of as the sciences of chaos and, and complexity. So, so that being said, what, what is the, this, given this diversity of, in its origins, what's the key common trait to it? And, and that clearly is this idea of the, con, of the system which is a, a relatively new idea and really dates from the 20th century in a meaningful sense. So what the system, what the system tries to get at is uh, to propose a kind of framing for understanding phenomena, for understanding entities from a holistic perspective. So really it's in opposition to more traditional redu reductionist understandings where you would take a, a system or um, an, an entity and you would try and understand its components by breaking it down to its constituent elements. And then once you understood the elements of it, you would build it back up, you'd reassemble it. So, you know, that would be kind of like a clockwork mechanism. If you wanted to understand how a clockwork mechanism works, you would take mm -hmm. the clock apart, you would look at all the cogs and you would understand how all the cogs work and then you would reassemble it. That's a kind of reductionist uh, model of science, which prevailed throughout the early scientific period, where in order to understand bigger systems, we need to understand the, the 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 lower ones and everything is contained in the lower systems yeah the system fr framing says no you can't just reduce because there is something that happens in a totality of the system that is not reducible to its parts so you have to understand the inherent dynamics the inherent properties of the system um, and you have to understand how these elements are integrated as a whole as opposed to merely in terms of their constitutive uh, characteristics so when you try and break it down further, then there's a number of ways in which we can understand the key constituents of a system that gets at the various ideas that, that permeate systems theory. One is, you know, if you look at a system, what is its structure? In other words, what is it made of? What are its components? What are its parts? How are these organized together? Secondly, you would look at its function, and that's very important. Like a system is something that has a number of processes, operations that constitute it as a whole. Mm -hmm. and are generally directed towards some sort of goal or purpose. Yep. And then you would think about the interconnectivity. How do all these parts connect to one another? What are the flows of mass, energy, or information that sustain them? And finally, you would think about the boundary. Where, how does the system, uh, how is the system distinguished, separated from its environment? And what relationship does it have with that environment. So some systems can be more or less closed or open to their environment, meaning they can have more or less flows of mass, energy, and information between them. And understanding how that boundary operates and what traverses it is key to understanding the system. There's a final kind of analytical point here about the boundary, which is very important, which is, in a sense, there's a certain arbitrariness to where you draw the boundaries of a system. Uh, you know, you can think of a, an organism as a system, but you can also think about a collective as a system. Or you can think, you know, so you could take a species, you know, or a herd of animals as being the system. Or you could take the environment, and with the, including the system, the, 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 the herd, and all sorts of other beings as being the system. So in a sense, it's systems all the way down. Yeah. So when you conduct a systems analysis, you need to make a kind of decision early on uh, as to what is the scale at which you're observing it. And that's very much a function of the decisions made by the observing system. Because yep. There's that other layer as well, which is that as analysts, we are also observing systems 
who therefore have their own relationships with their environment. And even to go even further, we have systems that are able to introspect, to observe themselves. Like we as humans are very much introspective systems. So the whole framing of systems gets very complex. Um, and you need to, there's not only, in a way, system theory is a kind of, to use a kind of philosophical term, a kind of, it has an ontological character, which is says it tells says something about how the world is. The world yeah. is made of systems, but it also has with briefly very profound epistemological questions, which is how do we know things? You know, how do systems know things? Because if everything is systems, we are also, of course, systems. Now, to get to your final question, you know, how does this all relate to uh, war and, and the military? Well, I mean, th- there's an obvious kind of. Uh, uh, trite way in which it does, because if you assume everything is a system, then by definition, armed conflict is also going to be made of systems. Yep. Uh, but to be a little bit more specific, uh, it seems pretty obvious that military organizations are themselves systems, very complex systems, compose themselves of systems, uh, technical and human and social and so forth. And for a long time, the military has had some understanding of this, uh, the disciplines of operations research, systems analysis that grew out of the Second World War, really evolve next to this systems theory um, that I've discussed. In fact, they're, they're at the origins of, of, of some of it. So so there's a long-standing appreciation of systems, at least from this kind of more engineering managerial perspective, not necessarily so less so perhaps at the level of command or frontline. Uh, but also, of course, ultimately, war itself can be understood as a system. Um, and in doing so, well, you know, we can hope to perhaps understand some of its dynamics better, perhaps control it, although the question of to the extent to which we control dynamic systems is, is yeah. an open one. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I think that the, at least on the U.S. or Western side of this question, perhaps, um, you know, there was a great leap because I think that this is a very important concept um, and, and it's applicable in war and warfare uh, very much so. And there was a big leap made in the nineties, you know, with John Boyd and the enemy as a system. But then after that construct failed uh, a little later down the road, uh, perhaps probably because it was misapplied to some degree, uh, there's been this, um, this shunning of systems thinking in a lot of uh, cases as it relates to the, the the way the military thinks about uh, war and warfare. And so it's just an interesting thing. And there's something you said, too, that I wanted to hit on, the framing of systems, I think. That's always something that um, is somebody that's published uh, several things, several papers and whatnot, something that I always find um a lot of the arguments against something you may or may have uh, a point you may have made when you're doing writing goes to that. The person reading the the thing you wrote doesn't understand the frame necessarily that you put around it or the, you know, the constraints that you were operating under. And so like sometimes when I'm reading a book, like I'll find something and I'll write no in the margin, but it could just be that you don't understand the frame because, you know, authors don't always have the time to sit down and explain every, every, every bracket and the parameters associated with that. And so that's, I think, an important thing to understand is the framing of arguments and the framing of, of systems is uh, vitally important to, to appreciating how they, how they operate. Just to touch briefly on the two points you made, I think an inherent difficulty for, well, any organization, but I think it, it affects the military particularly, is, is when you try and appropriate 
complex ideas like the system and that you know as i say i was just scratching at the surface of it but you can yeah. see all the big questions that are, arise from it if it, it the problem with concepts like these is that they tend to be appropriated and as they could become appropriated and kind of um brought down to be as accessible as possible often they then become quite fossilized and rigid and hollowed out and people lose this this the you know the, the all the subtle nuances and even all the open questions that come with it and it becomes you know another item of doctrine of you just speak the buzzword and then everyone <laughs> you know follows suit but eventually yeah. everyone says uses mouth mouth the word but nobody really understands what it means anymore or have uh, lost the kind of nuance that, that came with it originally. Having worked on ideas and how ideas get published in a military, I can assure you that as, as things get pushed through the system, the nuance, something that may be very craggy and very uh, ugly looking as it's coming through because it has so much nuance and distinction to it, gets whittled down to a very nice uh, you know, sphere as it comes through that process of approval. The other thing real quick, I said John Boyd, I meant John Warden uh, when I mentioned the enemies of system. Um, as you were talking, I realized that I had said the wrong name. All right, so with that in with that in mind, not the wrong name part, but the, the systems idea in mind. In your book, you lay out uh, four regimes of scientific four regimes of the scientific way of warfare. Um, why is it that this taxonomy taxonomy is needed, and how do you find it useful for the study of war? Well, um, I, I think what I propose in in the book is a periodization. I used to think about the span of the modern era of war, so going back to the 17th and 18th centuries up to present day, and to think about the period during which the modern kind of science took form and became increasingly influential broadly culturally, but specifically in this case, on the way in which war was imagined and, and practiced. And in doing so, I, I came up so with a kind of these, these four categories, which follow, I would say, main periods in the scientific ideas that dominated the periods and see how we can think of them as correlated to the practice of war. So uh, these four periods are centered around four bodies of scientific theory, but also four technologies. So the technology is the clock, the engine, the computer, and the network. And they're all key technologies because they of course have material qualities you see these technologies everywhere at the, in their in their contemporary periods but also their metaphors their models for the way in which the world is mm -hmm. uh, so the clockwork kind of maps onto newtonian's idea of a clockwork universe it's incredibly stable and regular and can be understood in the reductionist way that I outlined earlier. You have the uh, the engine, of course, that powers the industrial revolution. Uh, you have the computer that comes you know, central to economic and uh, uh, political activity throughout the 20th century. And the network, of course, we all live in the age of the network. We're used to thinking of that. And, and of course, the, the computer becomes, the engine becomes a model for the human body. We're all kind of producing energy and or, trans, uh, or uh, processing energy and the computer becomes a model for the brain and for the way in which we process information and the network as i say becomes a model for society and, and technology now next to these technologies are then kind of bodies of scientific thinking mechanism with the clockwork thermodynamics with the engine cybernetics with the computer and, and chaos theory and complexity which i uh, called chaoplexity mm -hmm. associated with, with the network. So 
trying to keep this brief and uh, not in too much detail, what happens in these periods is that you get different kinds of military approaches that echo these scientific and technological paradigms. So mechanistic war warfare or mechanistic armies, which we can think of as predominating in the 18th centuries, think of the Prussian army of Frederick the Great, are incredibly well-drilled soldiers uh, performing uh, rehearsed moves on the battlefield, very little autonomy, uh, but a, a way of maintaining order on the battlefield in accordance with the instructions of a single commander. So highly centralized, um, effective, but you know, with no ability to adapt to what's going on on the battlefield. That gives way to kind of a thermodynamic era where war becomes a more dynamic activity. Uh, energy becomes central to the conduct of war, whether it's the popular energies, you, know, you think of the living en masse of the French revolutionary armies or the mobilization of uh, the world wars, or it's the energy that's introduced through the industrialization of war, the motorization of vehicles, of course, uh, in the, on land, on air, on at sea, or the use of industry to produce uh, weapons and to um, support very, very long, very extensive conflicts, the total wars of the, of the 20th century. Eventually, this kind of culminates, we could say, in a sense, with the Second World War and the atomic weapon, the kind of paroxysm of uh, energy being channeled, channeled into war. But it also, at that point, kind of pivots into a new model, a cybernetic model, where increasingly computers and information become central to, uh, to the conduct of war. And here, of course, we would think of the computerization of the military in, in, during the Cold War, the building of modeling systems, of all sorts of scientific approaches to, to the exercise of, of war, huge command and control infra infrastructures that have to be erected, particularly in preparation for a potential nuclear war. Uh, so many things have to start, are, are become automated, uh, obey kind of systems of cybernetic feedback um, and this approach kind of encounters a bit of a crisis in, in Vietnam, where the U.S., despite uh, on paper having a far more advanced military, having all this sophisticated computer technology, is unable to uh, decisively defeat uh, the North Viet Vietnamese. And at the same time, the science is kind of moving away from some of the early postulates of cybernetics we're operating still in a regime where information is the key scientific concept, but increasingly we're interested in systems that have emergent properties, self-adaptation, uh, decentralized bottom-up uh, emergence um, that you might associate with the dynamics of swarms in the animal world, um, other kind of dynamic uh, non-linear processes such as the weather and so forth. And from the late 70s onwards, we start seeing these ideas beginning to percolate in, into the military, notably through this understanding of, of the network, a criticism or critique of the Vietnam War and of what's perceived as a highly centralized Cold War military, uh, which then gives rise to, in the 1990s, the ideas of network-centric warfare that quite explicitly adopts these ideas from Kaoplexity by saying that military self-organizing systems need to decentralize, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the kind of application of these ideas is, I guess, pretty checkered as well, uh, given the the history of the uh, war on terror, where again, you know, the U.S. In crisis, in, encounters major problems fighting much more technologically inferior uh, adversaries. But still, today, I would say these are the ideas 
that predominate within the military. That is to say, we're still kind of reinventing this wheel of we need networks, we need to decentralize, we need adaptation. It's got there's a new wind, I think, that's been brought to these ideas through the latest wave of robotics. So we see a lot about you know talk about swarms in the in, in the drone sphere and and so forth. Uh, the ability to uh, adapt to um, gracefully to, to the, the graceful degradation of uh, the information environment in the context of potential great power war and so forth. So, you know, this period, this periodization, I think there's two ways of looking at it. One is, you know, uh, the the eye of a kind of historian, which is to say, can we this, discern in these kind of broad brushes, these periods in which successive ideas uh, came into prominence. Uh, but I think there's also, you know, a, a heuristic value because, you know, I think most historians kind of bristle at that kind of very broad brush yeah. periodization. It's, and obviously it's a lot more complicated right. than the categories allow for. Um, but the argument I would make, the argument I would make for the heuristics of it is that I think that it offers a, uh, an effective way of thinking about certain kind of problems that were prevalent and prominent throughout this entire and perennial, I would say, throughout this entire period, which is to say the problems that militaries face uh, with the challenge of control. Now, how, if a military is effectively trying to exert control over the battlefield, maintain discipline and order in its forces in order to achieve you know, intent, then it's faced with a number of dilemmas. You know, do you achieve this most effectively by centralizing, by bringing everything under the single command uh, by trying to predict everything in advance. And this is something that we saw in the under the clockwork model of war. It's something that we see again under the cybernetic conception of war. Or is there, uh, is it more efficient to actually seek adaptation rather than prediction, to accept that there are unknowables, that there's unpredictability inherent to the activity of war, and therefore that rather than try to control and predict everything in advance, what you need to actually cultivate is uh, resilience, adaptation yeah. to the unforeseen, and maybe decentralization might be one of the ways of achieving this because you in introduce more flexibility and adaptability into it. So I think there's there's been this constant push and pull between centralization and decentralization. Um, the dynamic uh, activity of war in the thermodynamic era was some concession to this. I think today with the development of networks, of course, decentralization has got a, a very powerful technological ally and militaries have been trying to make the most of that in the last 20 or 30 years, notably when they come up against organizations such as non-state actors of the variety of Al-Qaeda or ISIS that are extremely decentralized, perhaps more by necessity than choice. Yes. But we, uh, that has posed huge problems for for Western militaries, where you can't decapitate these organizations because they don't have a kind of a, a central command, uh, or that at least they're able to regenerate yep. very effectively. And that's attractive to militaries who seek to emulate this, but of course are constrained by the fact that they operate as state militaries, which are inherently hierarchical organizations. You uh, you triggered a bunch of bunch of ideas here. So the uh, the first thing is the uh, the the non-state actor comment, and and thinking about the the mechanistic and thermodynamic uh, eras of, of conflict. I am a big believer in not believing in centers of gravity. I think that they are a thing of the past and they fit a certain time in the past and they don't fit today. And they, you know, your, your example there on the non-state actor is a perfect example of that. There's no, 
there's no real center of gravity to that thing. And again, we tried for, you know, 20 years in Afghanistan and failed. We tried in Iraq and, you know, arguably Iran won, uh, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom, depending on how you split, uh, split, split things or going back to the framing thing, how you frame the conflict. And so <clears throat> centers of gravity is this idea, though, that just won't die because it sounds cool. Like, it sounds cool to be like, what's the center of gravity? You know, it makes you sound like you're really smart when you ask that question. Uh, and I'm always the first person to say, well, there are no centers of gravity today uh, because of the resilience of the system and the networking of the system. And that's one of the things. The other thing I wanted to comment on is I think this idea today, um, this network era that we're in, is so intertwined with the idea of systems theory that you can't you can't separate the two. And so if you aren't thinking about systems theory as it relates to how organizations operate and organizations operate within conflict, you're thinking about things incorrectly. And one of the key things, you talk a bit about force design, uh, just tangent tangentially in there, but resilience, I think, is a big part of this. And this is um, in a network-oriented uh way of operating that we find today i think the idea of lighter smaller forces is actually increasing um fragility into a system uh, whereas a larger more amorphous system makes it more resilient because it adds more nodes right because the network needs nodes and the more nodes a network has the more resilient it's going to be to being attacked and it also just makes it more redundant so that if it is attacked, it has the ability to continue going. And so those are a couple of the key things. This this idea of lighter, smaller is something that is really big right now in the discussions on force design as people think about the future and, you know, the, the swarms that you mentioned or the, you know, long range precision fires and, and, and new technologies like that, the transparent battlefield you know, this idea that we need smaller, lighter forces. But I think that that's actually looking at it incorrectly um, because it induces fragility into the system because of the way that things are networked, because it is a system and systems need uh, need nodes to communicate and operate. Um, so. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That That's my comment off, 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 off of what you said. I think it's really interesting. Well, I mean, I think I, I agree with you that um, the ability, I mean, the systems may not have uh, inherently centers of gravity, which I, I would agree is kind of metaphor that comes to us from the mechanistic era. Yeah. It, it is basically associated with the science of mechanism. That's the yeah. whole concept comes from there. Um, but at the same time, systems can also nonetheless uh, enter kind of uh, 
catastrophic kind of yeah, yeah. crisis. Yep. Uh, and, and it is in fact redundancy to a large extent that allows them to be to flexibly uh, adapt. So the, the, you know, the risk with a kind of scientific mindset, which I think is, is inherent to the ways in which our contemporary society is organized, is that you think of it in, in terms of efficiency, cost optimization. Yeah. And then if you go down that road, of course, then you're going to go as lean as you possibly can. Yep. But if, that might, it's arguably even a bad decision to do in a kind of business environment where you need some redundancy. But in by definition, in, in war, where there is attrition and uh, is an inherent part of the activity, then uh, it does seem ill-advised to to not build in significant redundancy. Uh, but of course, you have to make the case for it. You have to spend the money for it. It's not very sexy, uh, but it, but it is, I think, very important. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to, I think, go to the the bill payers and say, hey, you know, this this thing we need's got to be real big so that it can take a punch and keep going. Um, and that goes, I think, back to the comment on horses, you know, when you got horses working on this and systems analysts, and they're trying to whittle this thing down to what is the most optimal thing that I can put in the field, but war is inherently unoptimizing, right? And so that's, uh, I think, a good segue for my next question. So the big theme that I found we woven throughout your book was this idea of order and disorder and how militaries are always... Always, it's like a closed system in entropy, but, you know, militaries always, regardless of whether they're at home station or whether they're deployed and, and, and engaged in a conflict, <clears throat> they're always trending towards disorder. And so, you know, at home station, for instance, a military has to conduct training, recruit personnel, do all these things to make sure that it actually stays a functional operational thing that's just the on the state you know on the on the home station side of things and when you're deployed it's even worse if you're engaged in conflict because then you have somebody actually trying to accelerate you into disorder so that you your system essentially collapses right and so this dynamic this tension between order and disorder i found absolutely fascinating i think one of the big key takeaways um from your book and i think as we look at uh, force design and concepts and how we're going to operate, uh, you know, Western militaries are going to operate in the future. This idea of, you know, pushing against disorder and maintaining order while doing everything that they're doing is a big, um, a big idea that needs to be taken with, uh, taken forward with them. And so anyway, I just, I say all that to say, um, what is it, what does order and disorder mean to you as you as you outlined it in the book? Well, to begin with, we could say that order is quite simply inherent to social life, right? We as as humans, we need and as social animals, we need regularity and predictability. If you think, uh, you know, look at all societies have uh, pay huge importance to rituals, customs, habit. You know, we need things to be. Uh, steady, you know, yeah. to have some repeatability, some predictability. Uh, when they don't, we have what you know sociologists describe as anomie, like a loss of re- uh, of references, of norms, and we find that incredibly uh, in- uncomfortable. So order is in- necessary for for human activity. Uh, ordering is also profoundly psychological and cognitive activity. We are our pattern-seeking animals. That's what we do sometimes to to excess. You know, we we want to see meaning and pattern everywhere, which is why we're prone to you know conspiracies and all sorts of things mm. because things we need things to make sense to us. Yeah. and it's, it's just hardwired into into our brains. And it is inherent to scientific pursuit. You know, science is basically about finding the patterns, the regularities in nature, so that 
you know, st things are just not ha stuff happening one after the other, but to discover the fundamental order of underneath it. And once you've done that, you can then start predicting things, yeah. the movement of the of the planets, etc., uh, the movement of different bodies in our world, and you can then build systems, technology that exploits that. Right? In order yep. to build a reliable engine, you need to be sure that you've captured certain regularities in nature that will always operate in the same way. So we need order to to, to a great degree, and of course, in war. Order is essential to the coherence of armed forces, to ensure that orders are executed, and militaries have always privileged uh, discipline, right? The, yeah. the breakdown of discipline, the breakdown of order is generally the prelude to defeat. Yeah. Uh, and even beyond that, war, if it's to be understood as an instrument of politics, right, if governments set objectives, design strategies, they want war to be some kind of predictive tool or predictable tool or instrument as, as much as possible. Yeah. So order has lots of virtues, but of course the problem is that too much order is can be a bad thing. Yep. Too much order means stasis, ultimately rigidity, uh, no room for creativity and novelty. And to go back to kind of our scientific system theory, it ultimately becomes a closed system. And what systems theory tells us about closed systems is that entropy. That is to say, disorder ineluctably arises. The system will eventually kind of break down if it doesn't have some opening out onto its into its wider environment. So, it can't be a case of pursuing order and trying to expunge chaos. We need chaos because chaos, uh, at least some dose of chaos, because it it gives us the space for creativity yep. and innovation, and that's true for society, for science, and for warfare. You think about it in in the scientific context. Uh, you know, science has gone through different periods where scientists became convinced that they'd understood everything. Um, and, but then they realized that, in, and therefore they had ordered the world fully. But then they realized mm. that actually sometimes in order to acquire a greater understanding or higher complexity in our understanding, some order had to be given up. Yeah. So, for instance, in the 19th century, the mathematics of probability were introduced because some phenomena just could not be understood through the deterministic mathematics uh, of the Newtonian physics, you need the probability to understand the behavior of gases, in where there, in, of gases where there are billions of particles. Uh, in the 20th century, quantum physicists understood that you needed the uncertainty principle, which places profound limits on your ability to understand both the motion and the position of particles. And more recently, chaos and uh, complexity scientists have understood that nonlinear dynamics uh, and uh, uh, which pose, impose huge Im, uh, impositions, uh, huge restrict, restrictions on our ability to predict things. So, for example, we can't predict the weather beyond you know a few weeks because the underlying mathematics do not allow us to calculate long-term predictions because of the measurement problems. But all these, so all these, all look like defeats for science. But in a way, is by allowing these limits to some of our understanding, we then acquire greater understanding. Then we can understand the quantum world. Then we can understand um, uh, the behavior of nonlinear systems. So there's this dance between order and disorder in which it's necessary to surrender some amounts of uh, order in order to attain greater understanding, perhaps greater or more sophisticated, more nuanced forms of control as a result of that. And I think this is the same problem that arises in, in warfare as well, whereby trying to control and order everything is most likely going to be self-defeating. You have to allow for some disorder, some motion, some space of chaos where creativity and adaptation 
will arise. It's it's a complex judgment and this call that you have to make in all moment in all times. But I think it's a key one. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think that that's absolutely uh, fundamental to everything. It's uh, uh, there's you know, it's almost learning through failure to a degree too. You know, you and you hope that it's incremental learning through failure, not catastrophic learning through failure. And so it's every time you you iterate something, you know, in war in this case, every time you iterate something, because there's always this challenge response dynamic at play too, right? So every, everybody's trying to overcome the thing that you introduced to beat the thing that they introduced that beat, you know, to beat the thing that you introduced. So there's this dynamic going on the whole time. And so it's always one of those one of those things where it's, you know, this incremental learning from failure, this open system, if you're not an open system, being able to sense uh, what's going on in the environment, you're, you're, you're going to fail even bigger than what you would otherwise. This is, a, this is by the way, a very important point to make, in, in the, particularly in drawing the analogy between science and war, because there is a fundamental difference. I'm, I've been drawing that comparisons, but there is yeah. one fundamental difference that has that we really have to underline, which is, you know, scientists are faced with the complexity of, of nature. Uh, but the, 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 so far as we know, nature is not uh, willingly, uh, uh, wittingly trying to fool us, right? It doesn't change its behavior from one moment to another. It's not yep. involved in actively trying to undo our understanding. Yeah. We, we assume that it's basically constant and it doesn't care for us and we can just eventually improve our understanding of it. But war is a very specific human activity where we fight a conscious adversary and that conscious adversary is always trying to undo us. So yep. what worked one day will not necessarily work the next day. Um, and of course the stakes are very high because that enemy is trying to kill us or defeat us. And, and so we, we, it's really important to understand even though we borrow ideas from science, we borrow ideas from, say, industry or econo the economic sphere, it's very important in the end to think about the specificity of the military sphere where you have this adversary and this adversary has to be understood and respected and interacted with and not viewed as just an external constraint that we have to optimize against. A good example of this in practical terms too, um, and this is the last thing I'll say on this and then we'll jump into the, the last couple of things here, but I, I think you really see this dynamic in play <clears throat> throughout the Russo-Ukrainian War where early on, you know, it was St. Javelin, right? There was all these anti-tank systems that the Ukrainians had introduced. And then it was the Bayraktar drone, right? So there was that male drone up there floating around uh, zapping Russian units. And then those things, those those information operations, especially surrounding those um, those innovations, they slowly died off and you don't hear about St. Javelin anymore. You don't hear all the Bayraktar stuff anymore. And there was this arc, you know, this continual challenge response dynamic of, of learning and preventing disorder, right? Because when all the tanks started getting killed, Russia had to innovate different ways to, to operate. Uh, they had to figure out ways to neutralize the, the Bayraktar drone, whether through, you know, cyber operations or uh, various means of uh, anti-air uh, kinetic shooting it down. And then that 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 cycle has continued, and it goes both ways too, right? Russia's introduced things too, like like meat wave tactics. It may be old school, but you know it's something that uh, was introduced in the conflict and is still being used, you know, periodically. That Ukraine has to figure out how to how to overcome, especially given its limited um, its limited uh, in, in base of uh, military equipment. And so, 
I think that, that that dynamic to me is just a fascinating one because there's always this this challenge response dynamic and nobody ever comes out and says, hey, I've, I've created the thing that's going to win the war. And I think this is part of the problem you see with a lot of a lot of the talk about drones. You know, it's like now that now the FPV drone is the new Bayraktar, if you will. It's the new thing that's like the game winner. But inevitably, there'll be something that comes out to figure out how to combat that. It may take a little bit of time, but there's this there's this back and forth that always exists. Um, so moving on, <clears throat> I wanted to talk briefly about your article. It was published in 2017 called The Battlefield is Dead. And this is a, an interesting topic because a lot of discussions today are talking about the transparent battlefield and how sensors and, and drones and long-range fires and hypersonics are going to basically make it to where the battlefield will be always open to be seen and always because you can be seen anywhere on the battlefield uh you're always prone to be targeted you know when we factor in the things that i mentioned the you know all the long-range fires the drones all that stuff and so when i read that article um i was like oh man this is terrific I didn't agree with it because I don't think that that's the case, but I think that um, the article was terrific because it got me thinking deeper about this. So in the article, what did you mean um, by the battlefield is dead? Uh, Is technology killing the idea of the battlefield? And is that something, if it is, is that something that we should celebrate or does it make conflict even more um, bloody and destructive? So the article you're referring to is is a short piece that I published in this on, online journal called Aeon. Um, and I, I should say at the outset that uh, this is a case of uh, the editor writing the title and not myself. So mm-hmm. uh, um, I say this because I think the formula, the battlefield is dead, is a more definitive uh, and categorical statement than, than the one uh, I would use. And, and I would privilege the term of a disappearance of the battlefield. And the, so the nuance I would introduce here is this idea of the disappearance, right? So it's it perhaps not so much that the battlefield is gone per se, but that its appearance is uh, less obvious to us now, that its, its presence is much more ambiguous uh, today. Uh, so, so that being said, uh, you know, this... Uh, these reflections kind of came out of the, my second book, the, the Eye of War, which is really about military perception and, and, and military targeting, and thinking about some of the implications of, of the, the work I did there. And so it approaches the question of the battlefield uh, in a dual way. So I think the battlefield is both, in this sense, a physical space. Yeah. That's the kind of immediate kind of conception, but it is also an ideational space, it's a concept, it's an idea, and both I think are are very important. So, you know, if we think about how the the battlefield inhabits kind of the popular imaginary, I think we still think really of the battlefield in a kind of Napoleonic mode. You know, if you think about how how battles are played out in, you know, our popular entertainment, like any whether it's uh, the Avengers or the Lord of the Rings or whatever it is, we have these big set pieces that are, that are presented to us as decisive outcomes that are the, the kind of microcosm of war. You know, war is this culmination of the battlefield with yeah. some outcomes of victory or so. And, and my argument would be, you know, this idea of the battlefield as a decisive place of combat where troops meet, uh, as something that stands more generally for the temporal and spatial delineation of war, the idea that Mm. war is something that happens over a period of time, 
but it's bookended by a beginning and an end, uh, and also happens in a defined space, the, the you know, the battle, the field. Yep. Um, all of that has become, in fact, in reality, much uh, more ambiguous than, than, than our imaginary still holds on to. And with that, uh, we also find that uh, it presents challenges to the normative bounding of war, because mm. it's we've co- produced kind of political orders where we create spaces and times of war where you can do certain things that you can't do in the, in in peacetime, right? Yeah. Where killing is man is is authorized, even mandated. Where different kinds of laws apply than they would do in in the in the in the domestic sphere or in the in a time of of peace. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the, while this kind of classical imaginary of the battlefield prevails, in fact, ever since kind of the Napoleonic period, this idea, this reality of the battlefield, has been continuously reshaped by two centuries of technological and social transformation. Yeah. So I think these come manifest in kind of two phenomena. One is the increasing range of targeting. So the fact that over time, our uh, weapons mean that increasingly we can target ever more remote uh, entities so that you don't no longer need to kind of close on, on the enemy. You can, at this point, target any entity that you can locate on the globe, for instance. And then it's also tied to the totalization of war, where war increasingly becomes an activity that engages perhaps all of society. I mean, that's certainly the case in the First and the Second World War, or at least blurs increasingly the boundaries between the civilian and the military. You know, from the Cold War onwards onto the war on terror, it's increasingly difficult to delineate what constitutes a military entity and what constitutes a civilian entity. You can see this in the way in which technology transfers uh, are now you know, the military depends very much on civilian technology, doesn't lead the technology as they may have done uh, in some areas previously. And even the cultures of military institutions now, in many regards, are quite indistinguishable from civilian culture. So all of this, I think, leads to an erosion of the concept of war as a temporal and spatial, spatially bounded entity. And the yeah. battlefield, the concept of the battlefield kind of evolves alongside it. So people are now in the war on terror, there was talk about the global battlefield, right? The battlefield could be anywhere. But when you start saying the global battlefield, it's really tantamount to saying that there's no battlefield, right? Because there's no, you're no longer able to draw those distinctions. Yeah. Or, the, or the battlefield is wherever you say it is, which opens up visions of the battlefield as being something that just kind of opens up punctually. Oh, there's a drone strike in Afghanistan, or you know, a special uh, a special forces operation in sub-Saharan Africa, and that's that's mandated by being an extension of the war on terror, or whatever other campaign it may be. Yeah. And so the spatial temporality, along with the battlefield, becomes much more mobile and, and much more ambiguous. So I think that raises lots of issues in terms of how to conceptualize the activity of war um, and, and what, when does war beginning and, and when does war end? As for whether that's a better or worse thing, that's quite hard to say. You know, on the, on the plus side, war has become less destructive when we compare it to, of course, the episodes uh, of total war the first half of the 20th century, although, you know, nuclear weapons haven't gone away and so we still live with the specter of catastrophic conflict yeah. uh, but admitting that much one of the big challenges that we face is the question of the normative regulation of war and violence 
right? Because the whole apparatus of the laws of war that says, you know, how you should treat enemy civilians uh, and how you should support, uh, how you should treat prisoners of war, all these things become much more complicated when you lose the framing and the legal bounding of this is a declaration of war, this is a space of war, these are the rules that apply, this is domestic uh, this is a domestic or time of peace, or there's no uh, situation of war, therefore other rules apply. And we saw the difficulties that were raised by, you know, the drone strikes in during during the war on terror. It's it, it opened up a kind of normative legal no man's land where it's unclear, you know, what yeah. these what is the status of these strikes. You know, for a while they were conducted by the CIA, and then it came under the Pentagon's authority. Big questions about the legitimacy of these strikes. Big questions of how you then draw the lines, right? Uh, uh, and this, I think, is, is becoming also potentially another an issue as um, uh, great power conflict comes back into four. Like we, we're not quite sure what the rules of the game are here. Um, so it's not so much that we we will not necessarily see battles and battlefields. I mean, clearly we are seeing some of them in, in Ukraine right now, but that we we need to we, we still are kind of attached to ideas of the battlefield that in many ways are long gone yeah. um and that we still and we and we still trying to come to terms with the morphology the phenomenology of war yeah. uh, in the contemporary period yeah one of the things that i think going back to your your comment on like this gray area where we don't understand exactly what the future holds as it relates to this is you know, some of this, we now have the capability to, you know, shoot across the shoot across the globe and, and hit, uh, you know, state X's industrial base, right? And so it's one of those questions now where if we try and increase uh, um, uh, dis- dispersion, right? Not dispersion, but uh, distribution, right? We're distributed all over the globe so that we are theoretically more resilient we're protecting things like supply bases and supply nodes right uh but like those are operating out of your home country you know does that then make you know that that site in your home country a legitimate target for state x that can hit you across the globe with long-range fires and thus you know you thought you were actually uh insulating your military force from uh, you know, the loss of supplies, destruction on the battlefield, et cetera, you know, all these different things. But what you've actually done is, is made your, your society more susceptible to, to conflict because you thought that, you know, you thought the rules of the game were we weren't going to shoot each other in, the, in our own states. But, you know, Country X said, I, I, don't, I don't ascribe to those rules, so I'm going to go ahead and shoot, you know. And that's one of the things that I think we haven't necessarily come to grips with as we think about this idea of, uh, you know, battlefield transparency and dis- uh, distributed and dispersed methods of operating strategically, right, uh, that I think are, are, are still out there that have to be, I don't know that we'll come to grips with them until we have to come to grips with them, right? This will be an idea that's continually punted um, until until it's not. My last question for you, because I know we're going a little long here. Um, so is it, and this is just kind of a wrap up, like what what have we missed? As a scholar of armed conflict, do you, do you feel there's anything missing from the dialogue on armed conflict uh, or within the professional discourse on the subject? Well, I think, I guess my response to that would be somewhat related to the previous question, which is that, um, and it's a kind of broad kind of conceptual point. Um, we... 
you know, as a community of scholars, as a, a community of professionals, talk a lot about, uh, I have been talking a lot about the transformation of war, right? Mm -hmm. Constantly thinking about how war is changing and, uh, you know, the latest kinds of innovations and so forth. But all this discussion still seems to be articulated around uh, certain kinds of antiquated notions of uh, war as a referent. Uh, so again, kind of, we th we still think about war in the in kind of the mold of uh, maybe of maybe Napoleonic warfare, yeah. dominated by this kind of state centrism, uh, dominated by the central place of of the battlefield, and as, that's evidenced by the fact that you know when we talk about the transformation of war, we're always talking about it in the negative, which by by which I mean in the ways in which it's changed from this idea of a reference. Oh, it's mm. not like it used to be. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a reflection of, you know, maybe a, a, a bit of a longing for, you know, the certainties or what we mm -hmm. perceive as having been the certainties of the past. Uh, we see this in, you know, this insistence on this kind of uh, supposed Clausewitzian mantra that the, uh, war has a changing character, but an immutable nature. So, yes, yeah. things change, but in the end, we still really, we know what war really is. And, you know, mm. I kind of have a provocation here, which is to say, you know, maybe we should uh, forego this idea that there's an essence of war. Maybe what happens if we start to conceptualize war as something that's in permanent becoming, that is being continuously reshaped, that doesn't have this uh, core essence that we that we attribute to it. Hmm. Maybe we can't say much about war at, as certain by, in certain terms other than as an emergent interaction, uh, as a process of intense contestation, uh, as a field of forces. Uh, because when we go back to, you know, uh, through the history of war, when we look at the discussions about it, actually this sense that war is in crisis or that our understanding of war in crisis is almost permanent. I mean, if you go back to the Napoleonic period, Clausewitz himself was thinking, what just happened here yeah. in the Napoleonic Wars? This wasn't how war used to be. Right. I think every generation is being saying, this isn't how war used to be. Yeah. Um, and yet we we still, I think, are very tied to a certain idea of how the if not the good old days of war, at least the days where we knew what it is, and, and somehow we still think that's what it is. And it, and I understand why, of course, it's it, it's comforting to have some solid ground that we can fall back on. But I think that so long as we do this, we are constantly talking about the changes of war in those terms as being a departure from this past. But this past is it was never necessarily a, a reference. It was already a kind of war was already in transformation and in motion uh, back then. Um, and so, you know, my question or my kind of provocation to the field is to say, you know, what happens when we start letting go of these assumptions and start thinking about war as something that is uh, much more impermeable or much more impermanent and, and much more mutable um, mm. than, than, than we want to think it is. 